1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello,
2: and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm LeMisa Abdelati from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Anjali Dayal about her new book, "Incredible Commitments: How UN Peacekeeping Failures Shape Peace Processes." This book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2021, and the book challenges the conventional wisdom on war termination with important implications for peace operations. Angelie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: I'm an assistant professor of international politics at Fordham University's Lincoln Center campus in Manhattan, and my research focuses broadly on like peace processes, peacekeeping, the UN Security Council, and the sort of domestic implications of international agreements.
2: Wonderful. So, how did you come to write this book, Incredible Commitments? Like a lot of people, this
0: book, this is my first book. It grew out of my dissertation. And my dissertation actually grew out of an international security seminar paper uh, where we were supposed to do a literature review of a body of literature that struck us as interesting, but also problematic. And in this case, the body of literature that I took a look at was the literature on third party security guarantees and civil wars. And it struck me. As someone who had spent some time working at an international organization, who had spent some time before going to grad school, I'd spent some time working at what was then the United Nations Development Fund for Women um, in governance, peace and security there. Uh, I don't want to overstate my role. It was my first, like, real job. Uh, So I basically was doing everything in the office no one else wanted to do. But as a result, it was a way to see what the sort of... um, what the sort of like implementation part of something looked like from the fine grain ended, the fine grain sort of like on the ground parts. And it struck me from reading this literature that is deeply rationalist, that is so embedded in these sort of um, formal models that they were importantly wrong primarily because they didn't seem to really respond to the way these things worked in practice. And for that reason I wanted to take like a deep dive into them and to think about the problems in theory because I sort of had at least a passing understanding of the problems with those theories in the world. And so that's where the book came from um, from like you know a, a seminar paper I wrote in graduate school and from the understanding that I had, before I went to graduate school, that, that the, the world is messy and complicated. And necessarily, we reduce it to these sort of important um, ideas. But but there can, be, there can be a lot hidden in the elegance of things like rationalist models that is important to the way the world actually works.
2: So as I understand it, the central question for this book is why do combatants in civil wars seek out UN peacekeeping even after demonstrated peacekeeping failures? Can you tell us why this question matters?
0: Yeah, there's this huge body of literature on peacekeeping and its efficacy, which actually has a lot of resonance in the policy about the way peacekeeping works. That's really deeply anchored in these very rationalist understandings of what peacekeepers do. And these are anchored in um, like credible commitment theories of war termination and rationalist explanations for war. And to just give sort of a brief background on those, there's basically stemming from the idea that, you know, if people are rational, they should prefer to bargain and strike an agreement over something instead of killing each other, instead of fighting when fighting is expensive, when it costs us something. So if you get what you wanted another way, why wouldn't you do that? And these this sort of body of literature identifies three traditional bargaining failures, three reasons why we can't just agree why we have to fight. Um, the first of those is private information, right? Maybe you know something about yourself that the other party doesn't know. Maybe the other party, you don't know what the other party's capabilities or intentions are. The second is uh, this idea of indivisible stakes, right? Maybe what you're fighting over can't be divided meaningfully, and then you're going to not meaningfully be able to negotiate over it and the third credible commitments is where we see a lot of policy innovation at the civil war level and this idea is basically that if you're fighting over something that you're willing to kill each other over why would you trust the other side to abide by the terms of an agreement right it would be perfectly rational in this world to to look around and say if you're willing to kill me over this you're obviously not necessarily just going to lay down your weapons and demobilize and disarm and uphold an agreement because you want to. And here the idea is this is a role the international community can serve instead. right? You don't have to trust the other side to make, to, to make your sort of peace agreement credible. You don't have to trust them to uphold the other side of the deal. You just have to trust the UN. The UN can come, it can help you demobilize, it can help you disarm, um, and it can help you make your agreement credible. It can help you uphold your peace agreement. And that implicitly is the idea that underlies what peacekeeping is doing in the world, right? It's arriving after an agreement has been signed in in a civil war and helping to make the terms of that agreement credible. You don't have to trust the other side. You just have to trust the international community. But the problem with this body of work is that um, we know sometimes the UN is not offering a credible commitment, that combatants don't believe that the UN is going to be able to uphold the agreement, that the UN is not going to be able to provide them security, that it's not going to be able to protect them, that at the end of the day, if another party is really committed to breaking an agreement, if their opponents in a civil war are determined to kill them, probably the UN is not going to be able to stop that. And so then the question becomes, what do you want from UN peacekeeping if you don't think you're going to get a credible guarantee? And so for that reason, this seemed to be an important question to me. I would also add that we tend to think of peacekeeping, and when I say we, I mean like informed readers who pick up newspapers, um, I mean international security scholars or scholars of international organizations maybe. Um, we tend to think of peacekeeping as being sort of like a small oddity on the world stage, I think. There are more peacekeepers in the world than there are anything but U.S. soldiers, Uh, There are more peacekeepers in conflict zones than there are any other actor. And only the U.S. military has a greater scope and scale of deployment than UN peacekeepers. So this is an integral part to global conflict resolution. It's an integral part to the way contemporary civil wars are conducted. And
2: so this struck me as being a question that we needed an answer to. That's very helpful, and it's it's especially useful that you sort of outline in the book very clearly the various ways in which credible commitment theory falls short. Uh, now, part of your argument is that we really need to be thinking about the social connections between peace operations. What do you mean by that? Yeah, basically, um, if we live in a world where the UN
0: is a central actor in contemporary conflict resolution, then we live in a world where parties in very different civil wars can look around the world and get a sense of what the UN is doing and therefore of what the UN might do for their own sort of conflict resolution efforts. We also live in a world where necessarily um, people are going to understand the UN's interventions in a sort of historical context as well. If you or I have a sense of like what the UN did in Rwanda or what the UN did in the Balkans, then so do combatants, right? So do parties who are going to need the UN's assistance. And in that sense, when we talk about like a social relationship between civil war cases, or when I talk about a social relationship between civil war cases, um, what I mean is essentially that you can look at what the UN is doing in Mali and adjust your own sort of sets of behaviors and expectations and ideas accordingly. The reason, this is sort of intuitive, right? We, we know the world works like this, but for good methodological reasons and for like understandable um, analytic reasons, a lot of the scholarship on peacekeeping treats these cases as bounded as um, closed circuits. And when we look at the sort of way this is in practice, necessarily people negotiating mandates to peacekeeping missions or people negotiating the ends of their civil wars are primarily considering their own cases. They're primarily concerned with the problem in front of them. And so these ideas that, that you may be interested in the sort of global effects of peacekeeping, that you may be interested in the way that the UN does many things in many places, can seem necessarily secondary. Um, And considering the way that actually UN interventions are a system of socially embedded, historically informed interventions, can help us understand things like the puzzle of why you would turn to the UN. If you don't think it's going to give you security, when you have good historical and social reasons to think, sometimes it can't give you security.
2: That's a fantastic segue to my next question. Now, in the book, you advance what you call a distributional theory, uh, where you argue that there might be benefits to UN peacekeeping other than peace. Tell us about that. Yeah, so
0: I think, you know, in the classic understanding of what peacekeeping is doing, people understandably think that what peacekeeping is doing is trying to uphold a peace, that that combatants want a peace, they want to end their war. And so they are turning to the international community to help them alleviate this credible commitment problem, to help them make their agreement real. Now, if we spend even a little bit of time looking carefully at peace processes, the negotiation processes that precede the signing of a a peace agreement, it becomes really clear that not all combatants are interested in peace. And it becomes really clear that all kinds of other incentives are driving negotiation behavior. And I break them into sort of three categories. So I say there are four potential benefits to negotiating with the UN Um, on the ground that may explain why sometimes you turn to the UN even when you don't think they're going to give you peace. The first of those benefits actually is peace, right? You might be desperate. You might need your war to end. You might find that in your particular case, the UN is the only person who's going to, or the only person, the only organization that's going to help you actually strike a deal and uphold the terms of the agreement. So you may be desperate, and that's a good reason to turn to the UN even if you think it can't give you security. And we do see in the world some, what I call desperate negotiators, some, some parties to negotiation who genuinely want a peace, who genuinely know the UN isn't likely to, to protect them, but who have no other options. So peace is one potential benefit. But we also see a lot of, a lot of parties to civil war who are, negotiate, who are negotiating for tactical or material or symbolic reasons, when we say tactical reasons, sometimes sitting down with the international community is a really good way to regroup or rearm. It buys you time away from the battlefield. It buys you time to sort of um, plan your next move. Right. When we talk about material benefits, we might be talking about um, there's a tendency to think about these things like capturing rent, like an economic influx for yourself. Sometimes that is what peacekeeping does right sometimes it does enrich local elites economically but sometimes it's also things like state rebuilding or, or you know post conflict reconstruction or refugee resettlement material things you are not going to be able to do yourself in the aftermath of war but you need help doing And the UN is uniquely able to provide this service. And so the fact that you might not get a good security guarantee might be secondary to that process. Um, And the fourth potential benefit is what I call symbolic benefits, um, and are really just a way of, of thinking about the political benefits of negotiation that are separate from peace. And so you might find that sitting down with the UN is the really good way to Uh, Make sure people think of you as legitimate political actors, not just, say, as a rebel group that kills people or strikes back against the state, but as a legitimate set of of political participants who have ideas about the way your state should work or ideas about governance. Um, They may be a way to. Air your grievances before an international community and have them taken seriously, um, or they may be a way to launder your your um, unsavory political behavior, your unsavory military decisions. Uh, because sitting down with the UN or having the UN arrive in in your post conflict state uh, can serve as a way to sort of um, to sort of give international credence to your behavior in a way that you wouldn't be able to get otherwise. And so all of those are things you could get from from the international community and particularly the UN, even if you don't think the UN is gonna be able to provide you peace. You might want time to regroup or rearm. You might want material benefits like refugee resettlement or state building, Um, or you might want the legitimacy of appearing to work with international actors.
2: It is a very compelling argument. Um, And one of the nice things that the book does is really draw out the implications for different types of negotiators. Now, you mentioned desperate negotiators, but uh, in the book, we also talk about hardliners and spoilers. Can you talk to us a little bit about the different approaches that are taken by these different types of negotiators? Absolutely. Um, And I want to
0: turn to the 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 Rwandan peace process, which I talk about in the book to sort of illustrate it a little bit. Um, the, the Rwandan peace process, the Arusha the, the agreement, uh, which emerges from the Rwandan peace process is something that they start negotiating. The war starts in 1990. Um, the negotiation processes starts soon after. This is a really elaborate, lengthy, internationally um supported negotiation process that precedes the genocide. And for understandable reasons, we don't tend to think a lot about the agreement because it collapses into genocide, but it is really elaborate. There is a lot of indication that the different parties actually want to see it upheld. It forms the basis of today's Rwandan constitution. So it has the sort of like ongoing relevance in the world that way. Um, And it gives us a really good way to sort of consider how how parties to conflict think about the international community's involvement. And in particular, the sort of way that they read, um, read the sort of involvement of international actors where international actors don't seem to have a strong strategic interest in the outcome. And this sort of agreement is negotiated by... Two sets of parties, uh, the Rwandan government at the time, which is this big, messy coalition uh, involving the president of Rwanda and a huge coalition of political parties because Rwanda is in the process of uh, democratizing and of opening up what had been a one party state at the time. And sort of as the Cold War closes, this pressure becomes more um more uh, focused on Rwanda, and so the the Rwandan government is opening up to a bunch of different political parties. That coalition includes uh, the President's Party, who seem to be sort of um, what I call in the book, desperate for the war to end. So they're desperate negotiators. But it also includes what we would think of as being spoilers. Parties who are committed to collapsing this democratic government parties whose intent is to um carry out a genocide and parties who are really there to sort of try and defeat the agreement and that's we think of those parties as being spoilers Um, spoilers to the peace the other sort of side of this negotiation is the rwandan patriotic front the insurgent group that that um enters Rwanda in 1990 at the start of, that's what starts the Civil War, um, of primarily, but not exclusively, uh, the Tutsi children of refugees who left Rwanda in 1960 and at, uh, at Independence, the sort of first Rwandan Civil War, this is the second Rwandan Civil War, um, and who have largely been concentrated in population, uh, in refugee populations around Rwanda. Um, and we think of this group as, as being able to carry on a war for much longer than the Rwandan government could have. So I call them hardliners in the book because they don't actually need to negotiate. They could have kept fighting for quite some period of time. They have foreign backing. They can exit the country for foreign refuge. They are using the negotiation space to pursue many goals, to pursue alternative goals that they maybe don't think that they can get from war, um, but actually don't need to sort of secure through agreement. And so it's a way to consider different kinds of political projects for them that they wouldn't necessarily be able to get through war. Um, Things like um, what percentage of the armed forces are going to be um, Tutsi or RPF. Things like um, the transfer of pensions from neighboring countries uh, to Rwanda. These sort of like really tiny minutiae that are very consequential, obviously, to people's lives, but don't tend to, to... Come very like clearly into uh, play if you're pursuing a military victory instead of a negotiation.
2: Thank you for that. So, um, you know, the the empirics of the book really dive into this case uh, that you just discussed, the Arusha negotiations, and then also a case of uh, Guatemala. Um, can you tell us how you chose these two cases?
0: I was looking for. Um, Evidence of a process in the world. And one way to do that is to pursue a most similar cases strategy. So to look within two processes that are really similar, except insofar as they vary on the the sort of factor of interest to me. And in this case, I was looking for two cases that were really similar to one another, but in one case, you might have a good expectation that the UN might help you uphold the terms of your agreement. And in another case, you might have very little expectation that the UN might help you um, uphold the terms of your agreement. I was also looking for cases within um, what is now like a historical time period. Uh, So not contemporary cases, but cases that were clearly concluded and that had been where we could pursue the sort of, Uh, process of interest um through like a retrospective lens in the peace agreement and peacekeeping literature it usually takes like five or ten years to figure out whether or not something has actually worked so i needed cases that were like clearly concluded i started working on this project in 2011 so that pushed me towards thinking about like at latest the early 2000s um and i was also looking for um For cases that I could consider, like, actually getting access to in some ways. Um, Things like archives, things like being able to interview people. And so I basically built a timeline of the UN's successes and failures um, and was looking for. Cases that were similar to each other that happened around the same time period um, where we could see variation in whether or not they would have a good expectation of the UN helping or the UN not helping. And that pushed me towards Rwanda and Guatemala, which are cases that were both formally concluded by um, the late 1990s and where these are small countries, Um, that had experienced internationalized civil wars where there was significant external involvement in the civil war, where there was external involvement at extensive levels in the negotiation process, and where um, both countries had been gripped by genocide. And that last part was important as well because when we think about the stakes of particular cases, right, some cases are easy to solve. Some cases are hard to solve. Um, The cases that I chose needed to be similarly difficult to negotiate. And genocide tends to be a pretty good um, way to see that there are deeply malevolent actors within a case committed to wrecking a peace by any means. And so that's how I settled on these two cases.
2: Now, you mentioned uh, archives and interviews. Can you tell us a little bit more about what sort of evidence you gathered to examine these two cases?
0: Yeah, so the, the method I'm using is process tracing.
2: And the way I sort of,
0: the, the mode of process tracing that I'm using is to consider that I'm looking for evidence of a process in the world using a plurality of evidence. So as many different markers of a process as I can find. And in these cases, this was a combination of um, archival work and interviews. So looking at historical um, body of documents from as many different sources as I could, and talking to participants, or if I couldn't talk to them, then seeking out oral histories um, or, you know, contemporaneous interviews with them. And in the sort of case of Rwanda, the the archives that I considered were a combination of UN archives um, and of US archives. Um, that's because the U.S. is one of the key international actors in helping negotiate the agreement. There are also there was also a French negotiating team there to help. The French archives uh, were largely closed, uh, were completely closed on the Rwandan case until actually. Uh, the summer of 2020. Uh, this book was due to the publisher September of 2020. So I never got to see those documents. <laughs> um, but, but those would be the two sort of external negotiating teams archives. So looking for declassified documents from the U.S. negotiating team, um, looking at the available documents from the U.N. A lot of the, the sort of documents that I ended up using were um, housed at the National Security Archive at George Washington University because they ran a Rwanda 20 years project for 20 years after the genocide where they collected a lot of these documents. Not all of them are there, but I do want to mention them because they do an extraordinary service. Um, it's also where all of the Guatemala documents that I looked at from the U.S. perspective came from, and I'll get to that in just a second. But um, the other place I looked was uh, in in Rwanda, at the Rwandan Parliamentary Archive, um, at the archives of the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, um, and in both those cases, or at least in the Rwandan Parliamentary Archive, I found there was actually zero information. That's why I ended up relying so much on the on the. Um, the U.S. archive of this negotiation. Now, there are good reasons to believe that that tells us something. Also, um, thinking about, say, like Lian Fuji's work on conflict narratives, silence is evidence, and there is good reason to believe that there are good political reasons to have zero documents on the negotiation of the Arusha Peace Process in the Rwand- Rwandan Parliamentary Archive. Um, where those documents are, I don't really know. I mean, I, I I assume they may be at the RPF headquarters, which I did not get to. Um, the for reasons related to the way that I wanted to do the research, um, they they may have been destroyed. I I don't really know, but but because the agreement forms the basis of the contemporary Rwandan constitution. I was hoping to find something there. I didn't, which leads me to believe the process of negotiation is perhaps seen as contentious today in a way that the actual document no longer is. Um, And so I ended up complementing that archival work with interviews with members of the RPF who had been present at the negotiation, um, including for example, the chief negotiator, including the the liaison between the military and the political wings of the RPF. And so that's sort of the the way that case proceeded with UN documents, with documents from the the international parties who um, helped negotiate the agreement and with interviews from the Rwandan officials who, you know, today are willing to talk about this. Um, On the Guatemalan case, the, the the local records of this time period have largely been destroyed, and uh, to the point where, for example, today's genocide prosecutions in Guatemala draw on the National Security Archives' reconstruction of a parallel archive through U.S. government sources. Um, that's because the U.S. was extensively involved in the in supporting the Guatemalan dictatorship at the time. There is an enormous amount of US government evidence on what the dictatorship and the military dictatorship in Guatemala looked like, on what the negotiation looked like from their end. I didn't do interviews in Guatemala. There are a couple of reasons for this. The first is that I only had funding to go to one place. So I went to Rwanda. The second is because in doing interviews with some of the key figures involved, background interviews, they told me it was maybe not as politically easy to get people to talk about this as it might be otherwise. So I relied pretty extensively on things like oral histories that were taken at the time of both the government of Guatemala officials at the time and of the URNG, which is the rebel coalition challenging the Guatemalan government. Um, There is also extensive scholarly and journalistic accounting of the Guatemalan civil war, um, largely through the lens of human rights and through US involvement, um, but not exclusively. And so looking at those um, at those sorts of bodies of evidence where I could both the sort of English to Spanish language accounts, which meaningfully highlight different parts of the of the case. That's the sort of body of evidence I built on.
1: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: Great. So um, you've already spoken to us a little bit about the Arusha negotiations, but do you mind telling us a little bit more about what you find in your examination of this case?
0: Yeah, in talking to, in particular in talking to people, Who um, were party to this negotiation or who were observing it from outside, one of the key senses I got was that actually nobody thought the UN was going to be a particularly good guarantor of this agreement. Up until the last stages of this agreement, it's actually not clear that it's going to be the UN. And so there's a lot of international jockeying about who this is going to be. From the international perspective, This is considered to be a case that's pretty easy to solve. Parties to the conflict want an agreement. They are negotiating with one. It's considered a low stakes kind of case where why not send the UN at the end of the day? it is, you know, and we we see this like these explicit concerns laid out, or these explicit ideas laid out by people like Madeleine Albright, who's the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations at the time. Essentially, it's like this is an easy case. We 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 have political will to solve this case on both sides. Um, but the flip side of that is that. Uh, it doesn't appear as though any of the parties on the ground actually want the UN to be the person or the, I keep saying the person, uh, the, the body upholding this agreement. Um, but that's who it ends up being by contrast. Um, the UN high commission for refugees is, is written into like the, every part of this agreement. Mass displacement is a huge feature of this conflict, but also one of the drivers of this conflict is the sort of 1960, um, the 1960 displacement of um, primarily the the Tutsi population that, uh, that, that left Rwanda at independence. And so the United Nations High Commission for Refugees has a foundational role in this agreement. And one of the things I learned over the course of looking at these documents, talking to people, is that this helps explain a lot of what the parties want from the UN. They need help repatriating refugees. They need that help at the start of the agreement, and they need that help even more at the end of the genocide, when something like you know, um, with the, the, the something like um, seven million people are displaced, and there is no way for the local government to manage that problem on their own, and in both cases, those are hugely important features of the negotiation process. It is not clear to anybody that the UN is going to be able to provide security. Certainly it becomes like the clearest it could possibly be to any human being in the world after the genocide that the UN is not going to be able to provide security. But at both points, what we find is that first the sort of uh, agreement and then the Rwandan Patriotic Front actively seeks out UN peacekeepers as part of a combined effort to secure this sort of repatriation dimensions of UN involvement, to serve, to secure the sort of reconstruction dimensions of UN involvement. So in this case, I say these material benefits are hugely important to why these parties seek out the UN. And when I say they have very little faith in the UN's capability, one of the things that I found is that they take a long historical lens on this. Um, for many of the parties negotiating the, the Arusha agreements, their lifelong experience with the UN is that the decolonization authority. They think of the UN as being the same body that oversaw their exile, and then was um, instrumental to their life in camps. And of course, the UN is that body. It is the same body. And for them, that's their lived experience with the UN. Um, one of the, the people that I interviewed, the, the, the liaison between the military and the, the um, political wings of the RPF, said the whole of my life has been a frustration with the UN, Like, it, it, you know, and it was part of a conversation about how there was no expectation that he was ever going to get security in a meaningful way, in the international community. But at the same time, there is no other international body to turn to when you need things like, state building or refugee resettlement. And so those were material reasons to seek out the UN. There are also real, like symbolic reasons to seek out the UN's assistance in the Rwandan case. And this was particularly important for the Rwandan Patriotic Front for, for the, um, for what was then the group of insurgents challenging the the Rwandan state and what is today the ruling party of, uh, post-genocide Rwanda. In particular, um, one of the things that I learned from interviews and seems like extensively borne out by subsequent developments in Rwanda is that the RPF wanted the UN on the ground after the genocide to certify that they were um, not actively targeting populations for uh retributive killing. We have good evidence that they were today, but it was very important for those parties. It was obviously very important to the, to the men, and they were all men that I interviewed, um, to have international certification that they were behaving in good faith, upholding the terms of the agreement, and that they were not actively involved in victimizing the civilian population. And through its on the ground presence, the UN certifies that outcome. Through its um, credibility as an international body, it enables the RPF to say that it is the legitimate um, and consensus building post conflict government of Rwanda.
2: It's really, it's such a fascinating case. Um, but let's move to uh, Guatemala. Can I ask you to quickly summarize some of your findings there?
0: Yeah, the Guatemalan case is one that I look at. Um, so the one in case is one where it's not clear to anybody that they're going to get a good security guarantee from the UN. In part because of very uh, proximate reasons, in part because like while the um, while they're trying to authorize the the mission to Rwanda, um, the U.S. suffers this huge, massive uh, failure in Somalia. So there's a Black Hawk Down incident in Somalia, which is globally televised and, and really collapses the U.S.'s willingness to support multilateral peacekeeping. And so the mission that goes to Rwanda straight out of the gate is smaller than it's supposed to be. The international will to be involved in Rwanda is really, really small. Um, Guatemala is a very different case. Uh, The parties to the conflict in Guatemala could have looked next door at El Salvador, which was then the UN's sort of one of the UN's big bright success cases, and seen that actually they might get a strong guarantee from the UN. They might actually get a set of international actors that might be really committed to helping them uphold a peace. And so this is like a best case scenario for a credible commitment theory, right? You have parties who are sitting down to agree to an end of a civil war. They have good faith in the UN's capabilities and the UN's willingness to help them uphold the terms of the agreement. And so I wanted to see in that context what they made of the El Salvadorian case. I wanted to see what they made at the same time of the, the failures in the Balkans and whether that was consequential to them. I found zero evidence that they ever thought about the Balkans, which is one of those like funny research things where you like you you obviously can't ever know what someone is thinking, but there's zero evidence of this. but I found a really unexpected set of things in terms of how they considered the case in El Salvador for international actors, El Salvador was a huge success for the parties who negotiated the Guatemalan agreement, they thought they counterparts in El Salvador had given up too much. Both the military dictatorship and the URNG, uh, they looked at their counterparts in El Salvador and thought like they did not get enough out of this agreement. And that structures the way they interact with the UN from top to bottom. They actively work to try and curtail some of the UN's most successful acts in El Salvador. They argue for a much smaller footprint. Um, It's a much smaller mission, much less lightly armed. This is something that comes from the parties to the agreement themselves. It's not coming from the UN. Um, They argue for significantly fewer things like... um, like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in El Salvador has a, it's a, it's a commission for clarification and historical memory in Guatemala. It doesn't have any of the sort of teeth that the agreement in El Salvador uh, gives to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission there. Um, there's no ability to hold people to account for past human rights violations, which are extensive. There is a genocide in the course of the civil war and sort of, constant level of targeting of the civilian population. Um, None of these things end up being primary in the, in the Guatemalan peace agreement. And there are all these provisions of the agreement, including things like land reform, including things that would go to the root causes of how the conflict started itself, that don't end up being implementable and that are actively things that the, the parties to conflict want to be smaller and less significant than they were in El Salvador. And so in that way, they are interpreting what the UN and other international actors looked at as being a big success in keeping the peace as a failure to advance your political agenda. And that sort of with explicit reference to El Salvador is how that agreement, that negotiation process proceeds.
2: Both of these cases are so uh So well done. I wish we had more time to talk about them. Um, But I'm going to ask you about uh, policy implications. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what would you say are the policy implications of this book? One of the
0: sort of, one of the features of this book is it's about two older cases. And when this is like, um, a little like how the sausage is made kind of discussion, I guess, because one of the, really well, it was three anonymous reviewers reviewed the, the book for, for the press. Um, and one of the things they all converged on was, we need a sense of how these cases speak to contemporary cases. We, we need a, a sense of why we should really consider these cases from the 1990s as being relevant to today's world of peacekeeping, which there's so much more information combatants would have about the UN's past behavior. There are so many more peacekeeping missions. Um, and there is such an, like, a more extensive apparatus of global conflict resolution. So, what could we take away from this? So, the conclusion really tries to sort of, the conclusion of the book really tries to grapple with what this tells us about contemporary cases. And one of my big takeaways from this is that it does not primarily seem to be security. parties to conflict are after. They are not turning to the UN to guarantee their security in the aftermath of a civil war. When they want the terms of their agreement um, implemented, they are not primarily looking to the UN to do so using coercive force, right? But actually, today, the UN's sort of peacekeeping and peacemaking apparatus is really invested in this idea that one of the ways peacekeeping should work is through the exercise of force. We have more peace enforcement missions today than we used to, missions where where the UN is actively involved in military operations. We also have this turn towards counterinsurgency and counterterrorism and state stabilization missions at the UN. These missions, these, these like uh, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, stabilization missions tend to be really popular with states because they sort of reinforce a like really state-centric model of security. And they tend to, as a result, like prevail in some policy debates about which direction peacekeeping should go in. But thinking about these cases, And thinking about the contemporary way that peacekeeping works, one of the real dangers of pushing down that route of counterinsurgency and counterterrorism and state stabilization is that it makes the UN a party to the conflict on the side of the state. It helps the state reinforce its position using multilateral tools. In the book, legitimacy is a big part of what parties to conflict want when they sit down with the UN. But if the UN has already demonstrated that it is willing to partner with the state to take you on, why would you sit down with the UN? In order to try and gain legitimacy, um, or in order to try and become legitimate political actors. If we want to sort of think about the flip side of that, then, um, thinking, for example, about like Jenna Russo's work on the Democratic Republic of the Congo, it can also reduce the state's incentive to bargain with insurgent groups to begin with. So you never actually turn to settling the underlying axis of the conflict because you can rely on military tools to do so. There are good reasons to turn to military tools in these cases sometimes, right? And it's a very attractive tool, not just for like sovereignty hungry states, but also for people who are looking at real crisis in the world and seeing civilians who are under threat of imminent death and thinking, what is the international community's role if not to protect people? And in that sense, it's an understandable arsenal of tools to reach for. But I think what the book points to is a model of peacekeeping where peacekeepers are lightly armed diplomats and not just like degraded warfighters. And in that sense, really emphasizing the aid and... um, political dimensions of peacekeeping intervention seems to be an important way forward instead of the military dimensions. If you don't want peace, but you do want these other things, why not use these other things to help open up the bargaining space, to help push for a more inclusive agreement, to help push for a political resolution to conflict?
2: That's a set of really important uh, implications there. Um, But Anjali, we've taken up a lot of your time. So just one final question. Uh, This book is now out in the world. uh, So what are you working on now?
0: I'm working on a couple of different things, but in particular, two projects related to the UN Security Council. Uh, There's one set of projects I'm working on to try and sort of think about... How the members of the Security Council try and reconcile like really incompatible international commitments like um, the underlying commitment to sovereignty um, balanced against, say, the Chemical Weapons Convention or Genocide Convention. So how do these these sort of uh, members of the Security Council try to interpret these competing commitments in these dynamic contexts where sometimes you are listening to um, the state party that has used chemical weapons against their people, and you're also listening to uh, people who are talking about violating the sovereignty of that state in order to retaliate for the chemical weapons use that that you see. Um, There is, I think, a tendency to think about these politics as being really removed from the daily lives of people But in a lot of cases, the decisions and the precedents that the Security Council is making have real consequence to the sort of lived security of people on the ground. And so really thinking about how these actors conceptualize their role vis-a-vis these international commitments and which ones come to the fore and which ones recede, um, to me at least, is, is an interesting question with some consequence. And that's where I'm looking. In part, to be perfectly honest, it's also because... I wasn't sure, as I was considering my next set of research projects, where I would be able to go and what I would be able to look at. And and UN Security Council is, is a body that I knew I'd be able to continue examining.
2: Well, that sounds like a fantastic set of projects. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. The book is Anjali Dayal's Incredible Commitments, How UN Peacekeeping Failures Shape Peace Processes, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Thank you for listening.
0: With the Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.